Father in heaven, I thank you um, that uh, though there is nothing in our fallen hearts that would have um, sought you and desired you, Father, that you uh, pursued us. I thank you for the gospel that saved us. I thank you for your sweet fatherhood we have through it. And as we open up your word this morning, may we delight to see what a good father you are. May it be an encouragement uh, to us. May it be a comfort to us. May it be a sweet exhortation to us to come, to ask, to seek, to find, and to know that you answer uh, those requests. In uh, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Turn with us to Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. As we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount together and heard Jesus announcing his kingdom, we've seen that perhaps the distinguishing factor of that kingdom that Jesus emphasizes here is that it will be a kingdom of righteousness. In the Beatitudes, we see that this kingdom's inheritance is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And throughout the sermon, Jesus confronts us with both the incredible height of that standard of righteousness of his kingdom and also how deeply it is meant to bore into our hearts. It's as high as loving our enemies and being generous with those who treat us unfairly. It's as high as always speaking honestly, as honoring covenant fidelity with our whole heart. And this righteousness of Jesus' kingdom goes as deep as our deepest motivations. It means our righteousness cannot be done to impress others. Our hearts must be wholly and singly devoted to God free from the anxieties of those who seek the treasures of this world. Now, Jesus knows how challenging and convicting his teaching on righteousness is. If anyone was not convicted by what Jesus taught about righteousness, then they were likely or should have been struck about what he said about judgmentalism. Jesus knows he is presenting a standard that appears to be completely beyond us. In our passage this morning, he refers to us as evil. He recognizes that the fall has corrupted the nature of every single person. And yet, he has said in this sermon, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching that they could use the law as a system by which to prove they were righteous, that they could be worthy of God's favor. They were definitely demonstrating that this is what they thought of the law and righteousness. They could boldly come before God because they had met his standard. Christians through church history have so often followed this same pattern, either explicitly in their teaching or implicitly in their actions. Now, throughout this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has demonstrated That this is actually impossible. None of us, on our own merit, can meet the standard of righteousness of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus has demonstrated what Paul teaches in Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Jesus' standard of righteousness, even what he teaches about the righteous standard of the law itself, reveals that we have fallen short. 
Anyone who thinks they are impressing God with their righteousness is self-deceived and is lowering the standard of God's righteousness to something that might at least look externally impressive while it is inwardly hypocritical and selfish. So Jesus wants to jettison the whole pharisaical view of righteousness. He wants us to desire a better, truer righteousness. A righteousness that loves God and his kingdom. It is good to hunger for real righteousness. To even desire this high standard of righteousness that Jesus has been showing us. We see that it would be sweet to enjoy this righteousness. Because the righteous life is one that enjoys and knows God. It is sweet to be free from bondage to sin. And the earth's treasures, it is sweet to set our eyes entirely on God's kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus tells us that if we do hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. While it is clearly true that we cannot produce any God-pleasing righteousness on our own strength, while we can't free ourselves from our love of money, from a judgmental heart, from enslavement to sin... While we cannot attain to God's kingdom on our own, this was never what God wanted for us. God didn't want a system of righteousness by which sinners glorified themselves. He desires that we know and glorify him for who he is. God doesn't want you to prove to him that you're a great person. He wants you to come to him for all you need for his kingdom. Have you noticed through this sermon that as Jesus has been painting for us a picture of righteousness, he's been weaving into it a picture of the goodness of the Father in heaven. The perfect Father who is himself the source of all righteousness. He's the Father who knows what we need before we ask him. He's the Holy Father in heaven who forgives our sins and delivers us from evil. He's the Father who provides what we need. He sees the secret places. He rewards justly. He's the father who cares for the sparrows and the flowers and the little things. God wants us to know him as a good father. And he wants us to know that as a good father, he cares for us. He gives us good gifts. He wants us to know that true righteousness comes from him alone. He's the one who grants everything we need. He grants the daily provision that we require. He grants righteousness itself. And so for those who have followed through Jesus' sermon and said, I want that. I really do desire to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I really do desire to know God as my father. I want to delight in the good things that he gives. Then Jesus says, ask your father. And see him provide. Let's read Matthew 7 verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you if his son asks him for bread will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is the good Father who provides everything that we need to live as citizens of his kingdom. We have seen throughout this sermon that Jesus has given that the Pharisees' view of righteousness was both rooted in and produced a misunderstanding of who God is. They didn't desire a relationship with God. At best, they wanted his approval so that they could boast in it. But all that they actually wanted or needed was the approval of men so they could enjoy the treasures that men gave, the treasures that they loved. Now, this is the tendency of all of our attempts to prove that we are worthy, that we're good enough. Our self-righteousness can never be true righteousness because true righteousness is rooted in God himself. We've just seen in this sermon how anxiety and judgmentalism both draw us away from and flow out of a wrong relationship with God. They both doubt God's sovereign rule and care. They worry about tomorrow. We act as judge in our own right because we are handling ourselves what we should have trusted God to do. True righteousness draws near to God. It trusts him to do what we know we cannot do. God desires to have this relationship with each of us. He wants us to know him as a father to receive from us the love and praise that he made us to offer him. He wants to relieve our anxieties and provide for our requests and needs as we rest in his fatherly care. Many people come to God, even bringing their requests to him, more like masters going to their servants. We make demands of God which we feel he would be unjust not to answer. God is our butler. This is how many people in the world who don't know the gospel think of God, how they even try coming to him. Why not try throwing up a prayer and seeing if it works? If they can be served? But if they don't get served, then they resent God like an upstart butler who has failed to bring them the tea. How dare he? How dare he bring me what I have a right to ask him for? But this is not the way that we come to God or the way that we bring him our requests. Jesus began this sermon saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These people recognize God's infinite glory. They see their own sin. They see that God has no obligation to answer our requests. It is only because of his grace and love that we could bring requests to God. So just knowing that he wants us to come and ask things of him should increase our delight in God. To know that he wants to give us good gifts that we have done nothing to deserve. So friend, if you have been confronted and convicted by the picture Jesus has painted of his kingdom, if you've seen how sweet Jesus' kingdom would be, if you desire that kingdom and its righteousness, but have recognized that you in no way should be welcome in that kingdom, 
that you can do nothing to earn your place there, then Jesus tells you, come to God as your Father in heaven and he will give you all you need. Jesus uses three words here for making our requests. Ask, seek, and knock. What he's characterizing here is the persistence with which we should come to God. If we're trying to order God around with our prayers, we will not persist long in asking before we cast prayer and even God himself aside like a product that does not work as advertised. But to truly long for that fatherly relationship with God himself in his kingdom, in his righteousness, that's not a casual desire. The one who is poor in spirit is desperate that their spirit be filled up by God and his righteousness. They long to know the sweetness of his kingdom. They pursue those desires desperately and persistently. Remember David's hunger for God in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Or remember David's earnest desire for righteousness in Psalm 119. I am a sojourner on this earth. He says, hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is the heart that is singly fixed on God. It comes to him persistently and earnestly. Its greatest desire is to know God, to be in his house, in his kingdom. This is the heart of a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. So friend, be earnest to know God and his righteousness. Plead with him for it. Ask, seek, bang on God's door with your prayers and petitions to know him more and enjoy his fatherly care for you. Desire to lay all your needs before him as you seek his kingdom. And then, if you do desire those sweet things, Jesus assures us that God answers these petitions. When we come to God as the heavenly father he is, trusting in his good character, trusting he made us for himself, asking for his good gifts, he answers us. He gives his gifts to those who ask. He ensures that we find what we seek. And he opens the door to his house to those who knock. Jesus explains to us by analogy what a good father God is. Jesus says, even we fallen creatures desire what is good for our children. Many of history's most evil people desired to treat their children well and give them good gifts. Now God's faithfulness and goodness to us as a father will be infinitely greater than ours is to our children. This analogy also helps us to understand how God gives us what we need. How he answers our prayers and requests. Because God is also infinitely wiser, more discerning and righteous than we are. Now, a shallow and isolated reading of this passage has sometimes encouraged people, even people who don't 
really believe in God or desire to know him, to hold him accountable, to say yes to everything they would want from him. It's fueled the butler approach to prayer. If you just have enough faith or wanted enough, God will grant everything that you wish. Of course, this Sermon on the Mount itself has shown that this is not true. But even in this passage, Jesus says, God desires to give us good gifts. He says, which of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The good gifts we give our children are those which encourage their growth, which edify them and are in the interests of their flourishing. Food is the analogy here. It would be a wicked father who gave his son a stone or a snake when he asked for food to be nourished. Of course, this is all the more true of God. God will not give us what works against our good. He will not give us bad gifts. He will not give us things which work against his kingdom, robbing him of glory as our father, robbing us of true lasting delight as his children. If God is infinitely wiser and more righteous than even the best parents in this world, we must allow for God to use his wisdom and insight in giving gifts, just as we do with our own children. Your good gifts to your children include discipline, Handing out chores, denying them another slice of cake, telling them that they need to apologize, turning off the television, making them go outside, encouraging them to spend time with people they would not have chosen. Even parents who do not know or love God see many of those things as good gifts even godless people know that a parent who indulges everything their children ask for just to keep them happy in the moment is by no means a parent that ultimately desires the good of their children. I once talked with a father who lamented that his 11-year-old was addicted to video games with violence and sexuality. But what could he do? His son loved those games and he wanted to be a good father, so the boy had to have them. Is this the type of father that we demand God be? How could God grant us something that spiritually and ultimately harms us? If a child comes to a parent demanding a snake or a stone instead of bread or a fish, a righteous parent does not grant this request. How could God grant a request that effectively says, give me an idol so that I can ignore and despise you? Even we as Christians, this side of glory, we will stumble in what we ask for. We will fail to see, or sometimes sinfully choose not to see, what is really good for us. And God will, even in our own best interest, deny us what we ask because he is a caring father. I expect many of you can likely remember things you asked God for in the past that you now see were not good. Request that you are glad God did not grant because he desired to give you good gifts. Now it is also true that there have been times that we have asked God for good things and he has not answered those requests the way that we had hoped. There are things that it is not wrong to pray for that are still not promised to us. 
that are sometimes withheld from us in the name of greater gifts. But these seemingly unanswered prayers can be a very painful experience for many of us. This is when all the more we have to rest in the greater wisdom and insight of our Heavenly Father. Parents know they have at times denied their children that might have very often been good because of a greater and more lasting good that they were working for them. Paul reminds the Ephesians that the command for children to obey their parents comes with a promise that they will live long in the land God is giving to them. A good parent's goal is the lasting good and inheritance of their children. And this is God's desire and promise for his children. He is working everything for the good of his eternal kingdom and us as citizens of it. We as children will not always see clearly how God is giving us good gifts in challenging times. But this is when we must trust him all the more. He may allow suffering that refines our faith and works perseverance in us when we otherwise could have fallen away. He may deny us a genuinely good thing that he knows would have become an idol to us. He may allow us to see the painful consequences of sin so that we might be led to repentance. We will not always see that plan working. We must trust our Father. In the Beatitudes themselves, we see that God gives his kingdom to those who mourn who are persecuted, the broken, the weeping, the repentant. Those are the ones who long for and receive the inheritance of Jesus' kingdom. So trust God and the superiority of his gifts. Truly desire the heavenly treasures of his kingdom more than anything. And recognize that even if there are things that God has withheld that seem very good to us, he did also do this for us as a good father. Now that being said, there are indeed good gifts which God promises to give all of his children. There are things which we can call upon God as a father for and ask for with absolute confidence, knowing that everyone who genuinely and persistently comes before God as a father will receive from him. And those gifts rest in that wonderful gift through which we know him as Father and by which we can most clearly see his fatherly love for us. And this is the gift of the gospel itself. Even as Jesus is teaching us to come to God as a Father, he knows that he will be the one through whom we can call God Father. The one through whom we will have a place in this kingdom of righteousness. Because he himself is a gift from God to us. The only begotten son given to die on the cross in the place of God's enemies. As Jesus cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? His death meant that our punishment was taken. And his resurrection meant that the curse of death was broken for all those whose sin was taken by him on the cross so that we might have the gift of eternal adoption as sons and daughters of God the Father. 
And God promises to be a good father to all the children that he has adopted by the gospel of his son. He promises us many wonderful gifts. Romans 8 tells us that everyone called by God to be saved is justified. Declared righteous in the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone who is saved is conformed to the image of Jesus, even eternally glorified. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that we have every spiritual blessing, every good and heavenly gift from God through Jesus. Paul starts to list those promised gifts. God chose us before the world began. He set us apart to be holy. He predestined us to adoption as his children. He redeemed us through Jesus' blood. He made known to us his eternal will for the glory of Jesus. He granted us an eternal inheritance in his kingdom. These are promises for everyone who is saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Promises God delights for us to ask for. He delights to grant those things to us. And then in this passage in Ephesians, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we see Jesus reiterate this same sermon that we're reading in Matthew, when he reiterates it in Luke, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the chief of gifts given to those who are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our, if our greatest desire is for God himself, then we delight to know that the Holy Spirit is God dwelling with us. He is God making his abode in our hearts. And the Spirit living in us gives us assurance of salvation. He is the guarantee of our eternal inheritance, all the eternal gifts of God. And he is the one through whom God grants us this gift of sanctification. It's through him that we are progressively conformed to this high standard of righteousness that Jesus says will set apart the citizens of his kingdom. Indeed, it's the Spirit who helps us come to God as a father. He helps us to persist in prayer, which works towards that righteousness. Now, Romans 8 teaches that he even helps us in our weaknesses. When we struggle to know what it is good to pray for, he prays for us according to God's will. He ensures that we receive every good and lasting gift from our Father in heaven. The Spirit's work in us will also shape our desires using God's word to shape the request that we will bring to God. He will help us see what is truly good and desirable. Our daily requests will more and more reflect the gifts that God has promised us. Our requests will reflect the growing desire that the Spirit is working in us to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. This will even shape how we bring our daily needs to God. Our daily bread, the things that Jesus says will be added to us when we seek first his kingdom and righteousness. The Spirit will help us to trust in the great lasting good that God is working, the perfect gifts that he is giving, as he answers our prayers according to his perfect wisdom and righteousness. 
So then, because of the great gift of the gospel that you have in Jesus Christ, come to God persistently and boldly in prayer. Not the boldness of the Pharisees that says, I deserve to come to God. But the boldness that says, I am confident in what Jesus did for me. The Son of God died as God's enemy, so that I, an enemy of God, could come to God as a son. Whenever a reconciled enemy comes to God and calls him Father, it gives glory to Jesus. Because he was the one who gave his life so that we could have this relationship with God. That is why we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus, dead and risen, now sits at God's right hand. He is the one presenting our request to God. As the author of Hebrews tells us, because Jesus intercedes for us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How sweet is the salvation we have in Jesus that we can be exhorted to come to God with boldness. What a gift it is to pray and know that we are bringing our request directly to God's throne and calling him Father. May we rightly praise the name of Jesus, who died and rose, that we could have every good gift. May we rightly delight in the Holy Spirit who works these gifts in us. May we rightly love our Father in heaven, who planned and gave all these gifts to us in his perfect love. Returning to our passage, now that Jesus has established that we can receive from God what we need to seek his kingdom and righteousness, he next gives us a maxim that in many ways sums up what he has been teaching on righteousness up to this point. We see in Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This verse is often called the golden rule. And much is made of the fact that an iteration of this command can be found in many different philosophies and religions. The people of this world can recognize a good moral rule when they see it. Often they can. Love each other. Share your toys. Don't cheat at school. The golden rule has a sensibility that it suggests to any hearer that if this rule were truly followed, the world would be a better place. And it helps that it's so pithy. The world loves moral maxims. Just saying them makes you feel like you've done something good. But when Jesus iterates this rule in this sermon we can see first that it, we will be totally unable to carry out this or any other rule without the good gifts of our Heavenly Father. And once we do know God as our Father, it will fundamentally change what we wish for ourselves and others. The Sermon on the Mount has laid bare that our natural instinct is not to give people the good that we would desire from them. Earlier in this sermon, Jesus showed us that our heart's inclination is to seek out the lowest standard by which we could call ourselves righteous. We might understand that we have an obligation to love those who love us, 
But people don't feel obligated to love their enemies or reconcile with their accusers. They don't turn the other cheek to the one who insults them or give their cloak to the one who has taken their tunic. Jesus also reminded us that so much of our good work is motivated by whether or not we think it will profit us monetarily or socially. Most people find it almost impossible to be righteous if they are sure that no one will see or acknowledge it. So no matter how much people might claim this moral maxim, most people actually apply this maxim more like, do unto others as they have already done to you, or as you will expect and require them to do after you do this good thing for them. Whatever people may say is good, for most people every day, morality is at best giving people as good as they gave you. Jesus' teaching on judgmentalism showed us that we're likely even going to hold up a higher standard for others than ourselves. We will ultimately require more of them than we offer in return. We will expect a higher standard of goodness from others while we will explain away why we couldn't be quite as good to them or just imagine that we were as good to them while we require less righteousness of ourselves. So then, this maxim, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, it implies loving people not based on what they have done or what you would want them to do for you, but considering what would be the most loving and righteous way to treat a person regardless of who they are or what they have done. Jesus has taught us all through this sermon that our righteous actions cannot depend on others. You will never be able to stand before God and say that you were right to sin because you were sinned against. You will never be able to justify withholding your love from someone because they didn't love you. Our righteousness is motivated by the love we have for God. It is to be independent of the actions of others. We should base our actions on what we would most desire others to do for us, not what they have or have not done for us. Jesus says the whole law and the prophets are summed up in this maxim. We remember that in chapter 5, in those contrasts Jesus gave us, he showed that a shallow, literal reading of the law was never how God's law was meant to be read and applied. Each commandment was meant to bore into our hearts and show us what Jesus loved. God's people could never say, well, the law didn't speak to that issue. There wasn't a law about that. Or, I didn't actually break any rule. All the law do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, points to surrendering, our, surrendering ourselves and our desires completely to God and then to others to love and care for them. This maxim that Jesus gives us shows how righteousness, even as it was revealed in the Old Testament, certainly as it was revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, is meant to touch every aspect of our lives. We see this same thing again in Matthew 22 when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment found in the law, found in the Old Testament? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
The command to love our neighbor as ourself looks a great deal like this command that we are looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? It's got a similar structure. It's got similar implications. And in both cases, Jesus sees that these commands, the crux of the Old Testament, the crux essentially of his own standard of righteousness for his kingdom is found in them. But to love other people like we love ourselves, to desire for them the good that we would have them do to us, depends first on loving God wholeheartedly. This is clear. Even when God first gave the Ten Commandments, it's clear. When he lays the foundation of the law, it's only after he's given his people the commands to love no other God than him, to worship no idols, then he can give those commands which address their actions towards each other. And all of those commands, the whole Ten Commandments, flows out of that first declaration of the relationship that God's people have with him. He's the God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. You can see that that's also true in our passage this morning. This maxim that Jesus says, which sums up the law and the prophets, follows from, it depends upon having a relationship with God where we love him and receive his good gifts. We in Jesus' kingdom can look back on the righteous standard of the Old Testament. We can see that it's good. But we cannot love that righteousness unless we first go to the gospel of grace for salvation. Or unless it drives us to that gospel. Unless we want to know God as our father. And receive his gifts and his spirit. So that we can actually grow in and delight in that righteousness. As we trust in the gospel. And delight in God's fatherly care. We see how he wonderfully upheld his own standard of righteousness. How perfectly he honored his own rule and loved us, not based on how we had treated him or what we could offer him, but based on his own perfect righteous character. By calling us sons, he gives us the love that Jesus, that God himself alone deserves. Jesus honored this maxim by serving and dying for his people who should have loved and honored him as king, but instead despised and rejected him. And when we are saved by trusting in Jesus and his wonderful gospel, as God adopts us and gives us his gifts, conforming us to the image of Jesus, then we can love others, not because they loved us, and give not because we expect in return. We can do good to others based solely on the standard of righteousness that we have seen and loved and desired and delighted in, which we find in God himself. And remember that many people in this world, they recognize at least to some degree that this maxim, this standard of righteousness is good. And they will see in us that this standard can only truly be upheld and delighted in by those who know God as Father through the gospel of Jesus Christ. While most people in this world love others and even love God based on how well they think they've been served... We can be salt in light by loving those based on how we would have desired they treat us. We're expecting nothing in return from them. We can even love our enemies. And God will be glorified even in this world 
because he alone gave us the good sanctifying gifts through which this righteousness can be worked in us. And so, friend, you might be one of those people who sees that this righteousness is good. It would be good if everyone treated each other this way. And if this rule sums up the law and the prophets, as Jesus says it does, then you might agree that God has a good standard of righteousness. But then you look into your own heart. You see that unless you are self-deceived, you really cannot live up to that perfect standard. You have fallen short of what you yourself say is good. And if God judged by this standard, you would be worthy only of his wrath and punishment. At best, you're getting by day to day trying to be good to the people who are good to you. You will never know true selfless righteousness until you know God is your heavenly father. You can't love what is good or carry it out without knowing the God who is the source of all righteousness. But the good news is that he desires that you would know him as a father. He desires to adopt you. And he does so through Jesus Christ, who loved others with a deep, compassionate love, even as they nailed him to a cross. And through his loving sacrifice, God offers you forgiveness, freedom from his wrath and an eternity in hell, and a right to be called a child of God if you believe in Jesus Christ. Then you can bring all your requests to him. Even the request to love him and others in a way that seems impossible now. Call out to him and enjoy the sweet gifts and internal inheritance that he gives to his children. And then, brothers and sisters, you who know and delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you have heard God's standard of righteousness today, as you've heard it through this sermon, if it has convicted you, like it has me, let God's standard of righteousness continue to draw you back to the cross, back to repentance and grace. Let this Sermon on the Mount draw you back to your knees. As you more and more see and desire the true righteousness of God, and then boldly come to God in the name of Jesus and his gospel of grace, bringing your requests, asking, seeking, knocking on the door for the good gifts that we have through his gospel and his spirit, trusting that he is a good father who provides for his children. I'm going to close this sermon with a benediction this morning, and I don't think any of us will be disappointed by hearing two benedictions. I want to leave you with the confidence you are meant to have in the gifts God has promised to all those who are his sons and daughters. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can call you Father. 
I thank you that you want us to call you Father, that you desire that we come to you and call you by that name because that is who you are. We praise you that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into your family. We who were on the road to wrath and punishment and hell now know that we delight in your eternal gifts and promises through Jesus Christ. So as we pray and come before you boldly, we give glory to Jesus Christ, your son, our king, the one who preaches us this wonderful sermon and tells us to make our request to you as a father. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that now as the people of God, as we come before you, Father, may we ask, seek, and knock for those good gifts that you desire to give us, knowing, delighting in, thanking you for those gifts as we receive them. May we trust your wisdom when we who are not yet sanctified ask for things that seem denied when you answer in ways that we would not expect or think to be good. May we, by your Spirit, be sanctified more and more conformed to understand your will and to trust you as a father in our own limitations. As we wait and hope for that good sweet day when we will see you and Jesus Christ and delight in your holy presence, the presence of our heavenly father for all eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our savior. Amen.